Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80 percent less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up Quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's Quince.com slash upgrade. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie Monday morning, the 14th of February. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. Some welcome news from Sligo, where Gardaí say they are following specific lines of inquiry. This is into an aggravated burglary and a vicious assault on a 73-year-old retired farmer, Tom Nyland. They hope DNA samples uh, taken from Mr Nyland's home will lead to the attackers. Uh, the brutal attack has brought the community together with dozens of local people joining Gardaí and members of uh, the Civil Defence in a search of uh, the route that the gang may have taken after forcing their way into Mr Nyland's home. But that is where the good news ends. Their, their horrific head and upper body injuries inflicted on Mr Nyland has left him in hospital on life support. Tom Nyland's family say they're expecting the worst and all they can do is pray for a miracle. Yesterday morning, a 79-year-old man had his life savings stolen in a violent burglary in Cork. His sister, who was 83, sustained a minor knife wound to her hand in that burglary at the man's home. Jerry O'Halloran and his sister Mary were held at knife point for almost an hour by a burglar who ripped out the phone line in their home to stop them from calling for help. Both victims are being treated in hospital. And as you've been hearing on LMFM's news this morning, Gardaí are also investigating a burglary at the home of an elderly man in Kilcarley in North Loud on Thursday morning. Damage was caused to the front door of the property and a number of items were taken. The man's daughter says the thieves were travelling in a black Audi with false number plates. Her mother's jewellery was stolen along with a coin collection, the family's 1916 memorabilia as well as signed Celtic jerseys. Violent burglaries like this take place all of the time. They have been for a long time, but there is an acute awareness of the risks that people face, particularly older people living in isolated rural areas because of how vicious some of these recent incidents have been. The IFA is to meet with the Assistant Guard Commissioner this week because it's very concerned about the risks that people face living in rural Ireland. And we're joined by Brian Rush, who's the Deputy President of the IFA. Good morning to you, Brian, and thanks for joining us on the programme. Morning, Michael. Uh, what will you be saying uh, to Paula Hillman when you meet with the Deputy Commissioner? 
Well, I suppose just first of all to say that obviously, listen, we're, we've, uh, and uh, I myself, we have the Nyland, Tom Nyland and the family in our, in our thoughts and also those other robberies you mentioned as well, you know, um, you know, hoping those people all have a speedy recovery. Um, we will be saying, I suppose, uh, as you know, Michael, sure, listen, IFA is spread across all the counties. We've got 29 executives and 944 branches, so we've significant resources in terms of voluntary officers. So, listen, we'll be saying to the guards that um, all our resources are available to them, and we'd like we'll work as we'll work with them in terms of anything they want us to do, or anything we can help them with, and use our network and our resources for. We will be doing that. It's worth saying that we we work closely with the guards already. We have a couple of initiatives that are on, ongoing here as well. So we have a good working relationship with them and I have a good working relationship with the Assistant Garda Commissioner there, Paul Hill. Is it safe to live in rural Ireland? Uh, listen, I, 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 it is, but as you're after mentioning, you have to be alarmed and worried by, you know, we saw the incident with Tom Nyland, there was an incident in the Celebridge last week and those two other incidents, one in Loud and one in Cork here after mentioning. So, listen, um, there's a vulnerability there I suppose, Michael, that now is at the forefront of our mind. And people have the right and they have every expectation that they should be able to be safe in their own homes. And there's no doubt that there is people out there, gangs or whatever they are, um, using um, isolated... The the, the isolation in some parts of rural Ireland to their advantage. Mm. And are they targeting people because they are vulnerable, because they're older, because they don't have alarms or some other form of security? Well, listen, I suppose they see an opportunity in it, whether it's whether it's because someone's vulnerable or not, whether it's because they're vulnerable, maybe, you know, they're living in a part of it, like farming in rural Ireland is changing, like there's a lot of part-time farmers there that just wouldn't be there during the day or the early evening. Um, these things aren't really happening late at night, they're happening in the evening time, and people aren't, like... Like, you know, rural Ireland or, or, like, socially rural Ireland is changing and it's become quieter. There's mm-hmm. less people knocking around. There's less people working on farms. And um, that brings its own challenges. Mm. There was a time, and it's not long ago, when you could leave the back door open. Absolutely. I just think of my own grandmother's house there in Eaton Derry in County Offaly. And she's lucky that her, 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 her brother and her, and her nephew or her grand, grandson are still not, are knocking around regularly and the door is left open all the time. And it's a lovely thing to to do. It's a very welcoming thing. And it's a very, like, it was traditional rural Ireland that you'd knock on the back door and just call in for a cup of tea. Mm. And there's definitely, like, I want to hold on to that. I think everyone wants to hold on to it. But people need to be safe as well. So, you know, it, mm. it would, it's something we just don't want to lose either, you know. Um, I'm not sure it's possible to hold on to it. <laughs> I think uh, if I was yeah. advising anybody, I'd suggest that they keep their doors closed all of uh, the time. But if people are specifically, if these thugs are specifically targeting people because they're older, it's different than uh, to uh, fortuitous crime, if it can be put that way, where they're breaking into a house and they don't know who owns the house. And uh, perhaps uh, it should be looked on in a different light. Uh, should be like the deterrent and just to say like, like the guards and I know the resources that they're putting into that case and right. going around the country they're putting they're putting everything they have in there and that's what we're saying to them that if there's anything we can do and any resources we can make available mm. they're there for them there but it's, there's there's obviously an issue with the deterrent that people are taking a risk in terms of a risk to you know to their own um, freedom by doing these things or t- t- taking on these aggravated burglaries and assaulting these people but the deterrent is not enough to put them off. So, you know, there mm. should, like I think we're, we should have a debate. There should be a debate around like what sort of deterrent is enough for someone who purposely targets a vulnerable person. Mm. 
Yeah. Any thoughts on it yourself? Listen, I would like to see a stronger deterrent on it. And I'm just reflecting the views of the membership. Mm. So, like, obviously, like, you know, we'd have all age groups, all demographics. And it's not only maybe some of the older people that are saying to us that there should be a stronger deterrent on it, but, you know, par- um, children, um, nieces, nephews, like, they, you know, they're looking at what's happening and they're, they, 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 you know, they're worried and you couldn't blame them for being worried. I'd be worried myself. Mm. Um, my own father lives on, lives on his own. And, like, I call into him regularly. I'm there twice, three times a day, calling in and seeing how he is. Um, but obviously, in the last couple of weeks, to the forefront of all our minds. Yep. So what I'm saying to people, obviously, what we can do, you know, just as people in the community, lift the phone, call into your neighbour, you know, you know, just, just check in on people. Mm. Problem is that if you're in the middle of nowhere, there's nothing around and nobody around for miles if somebody decides to break in in the dead of night. Uh, and uh, I wonder, going back uh, to the idea of keeping the back door open, do people have alarms? Uh, are, are people uh, protecting themselves in that way? Have they moved on from the idea of keeping the back door open and realising that uh, at least if you have a, an alarm and particularly a, a manned alarm, that there's a chance that someone can come to your assistance that you can yeah. you can literally raise the alarm somebody will know that there's a problem yeah absolutely actually my own grandmother has one there as well and her house even though her her, her her son is knocking around as well and it's good and it gives it gives my grandmother peace of mind and I think that's a good idea so anything that could offer a peace of mind is a, is a, is a positive um, the thing in the back door Mike you're right and people are locking their back door and it's a pity but I think that's where we are hmm. and um and it, like it's a loss like it is definitely a loss but I suppose people have to do what they have to do to make themselves feel safe as well. mm. and when you talk about the membership of the, the IFA and people's willingness to support on Garda Siakana and act uh, in support of them uh, if uh, they're requested to do that uh, I'm sure there's no great surprise uh, to see that great community spirit uh, of all of those people coming out uh, to help the Garda in, in Sligo to try and track down uh, the criminals involved in uh, the attack on Tom High Nyland. No, it's not, like it, it, listen, you, you couldn't, you could, you wouldn't be surprised at it, and, and it's worth like, like I suppose when, when an, a burglary like this, an aggravated assault like this, or a burglary happens in the community, obviously the person that happens to it has a massive effect there. But don't underestimate the fact it has on the community itself. Mm. Like it does, it does hurt the sense of safety and comfort within the community, but also it galvanises the community. And it, you know, if you look at what's happening in Sligo. You know, there's a big community response, like through the IFA network, through everything else up there. A huge community response, which just just shows just shows the appetite out there to help the guards and to to find the perpetrators of that crime. Mm, yeah, well, they're throwing everything at it, and we hope uh, that they'll be successful. Uh, and as you say, the IFA uh, is going to tell uh, the guard management uh, this week that you're there to help. Uh, what can be done? What can be done by communities? I mean, we hear about the community watch games and that sort of thing, and they can be very uh, effective. But is there more that can be done? Uh, there, there is, I suppose. Um, and it's it, it, like I suppose we look in, in North Dublin. We had an incident there a couple of years ago where a farmer approached two two people crossing his land with dogs, and he just listen. He challenged them to why they were there, didn't have permission, and he got assaulted. Yeah. And that galvanised that community, and they set up a community group. They worked with the guards, they worked with IFA, and they set up a community group set up via WhatsApp and that. And now the community up there is administering that group, and it's still going, and it's quite strong. So we've we've set up initiatives within our own branch structure and our county structure. Um, when that's been wanted and we've pushed out initiatives as well through our community engagement day with the guards 
So, and, and that's going to be, we're going to be doing that again this April. Unfortunately, we couldn't do it through COVID. The last one was two years ago. So the idea of that is through our branches, so in, in a branch, let's say, for example, where I am in Norkel there, our branch would set up a hub for the day where the guards would come and for everyone from the community to come and meet the, meet the local guards, meet the community guards and, and meet people in the area. Mm. Just, I suppose, listen, f- familiarity and visibility is really key around this. And if someone knows their guard, who they are, what they look like, you know, it, you know, it, it brings that, that, that sense of security. Mm. And the other, last thing I'll say is, in terms of visibility is key. And I complimented the guards, and I complimented them again as well. That during COVID, particularly the other stages of COVID, we're all very worried, and and I think everyone was feeling very vulnerable. The guards were hugely visible. There was huge resource put in. You remember the rented cards? Those were guards, mm. guard mm. written on. Yeah. And the feedback we got to our membership was that that gave a sense of security to to um two communities. So listen, the guards when they have the resources they will do that. The key is trying to make sure they get the resources. So mm. we'll be we'll we'll be working we'll, we'll be making that point. Well, are people taking t- steps themselves? Uh, uh, I mean, as I said at the beginning, um, this type of thing is, is not doing. It's not unusual. There's a particular focus on it at the moment for obvious reasons uh, because there've been horrific uh, attacks. But uh, do you think people do things to protect themselves, like have a, a baseball bat or a, an iron bar, or are willing to use guns if somebody breaks? I suppose, Michael, just on that, you know, the first objective, I suppose, is to to mind your own safety. And, like, we wouldn't be encouraging anyone to confront someone, um, you know, because you just don't know who you're confronting. But in terms of what people are doing, in terms of their own security, um, I suppose the, the, probably the busiest IFA meeting that any county executive will have in any year is, is when they bring in uh, Angarda Shiakana to talk about security and what farmers and communities can do. And, you know, it's a pity some people have had to do it, and I've had to do it myself, is put up electric gates, put up a camera, put up things like that, which just which act as really strong deterrence because, um, you know, a lot mm. of crimes are opportunistic. Now, obviously, some of them were planned, like you're after, after speaking about. But if we can deter the opportunistic... You know, it is a big step. But for mm. people are taking, you know, I suppose security measures um, in order to protect their property because that's where we're seeing most of this yeah. is, is obviously in robberies and burglaries. Yeah, but you could end up in a, a lot more trouble if you take on uh, whoever yeah. the intruder is, uh, whether you hit them with a, an iron bar or shoot them for that matter. Listen, what I say it again is that we would I would not be encouraging anyone to confront anyone. I suppose if you think if you're suspicious of anyone renting this happening, I'd say your first part of call is to ring on guard Shiakana straight away, uh, report it and, and um but don't I would not be encouraging anyone to confront anyone. Uh, you just don't know who you're dealing with, Michael, and you don't know what they're capable of. Mm. Uh, and uh, you wouldn't support the idea of people having the right to shoot intruders. Listen, what I say is that people have the right to uh to feel safe in their own property. They have the right to, you know, go to bed at night, you know. I know, but is it a, I suppose the question is, is it an attack or is it a form of defence if you shoot somebody or go at them with an iron bar? I suppose, it, from my own perspective, if I'm attacked, I'll defend myself. And I will defend myself. And I'll defend my family. But I wouldn't be saying, I wouldn't be encouraging anyone to, you know, to take up arms against someone. You know, the first part of call must be to make sure you're safe as possible, you, Mikey. You don't know what they're carrying. Mm. You don't you don't know what they're capable of. 
and and that ha- you just have to be careful around this. Mm. Yeah. Well, I always think the best weapon anybody can use going to bed if you are at all nervous uh, about a break-in of that sort is a mobile phone. Uh, so that you can ring and get help and ring the alarm for that matter and have an alarm in the house uh, and as you say electric gates and cameras and all of those other things that uh, will help to protect you and deter people from uh, seeing you as a vulnerable target. Uh, you'll be yeah. meeting with the Assistant uh, Guard Commissioner uh, and uh, I'm sure we'll hear more about that uh, later in the week Brian but thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme this morning. Thanks Michael. Thank you indeed. Brian Rush is the Deputy President of the IFA. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, as you heard last week, 48% of unemployed people have cut back on essential heating and electricity. 47% of single parents have cut back on essential heating and electricity. 37% of single parents have cut back on other essentials like food. A quarter of renters have cut back on essentials like food. And 61% of people renting accommodation have cut back on essential heating and electricity. That's according to that Red Sea poll that was published last week by the Society of St. Vincent de Paul. Let's speak to Breed O'Brien, who's head of policy and media with uh, the Irish National Organisation for the Unemployed. Uh, good morning to you, Breed, and good thanks morning. for joining us. Uh, do those survey findings reflect uh, what you're seeing on the ground? Oh, yeah, very much so. I mean, we, in the last budget, we had thought a 10 euro increase because we really felt, you know, the payment hadn't kept a step with the cost of living. And since then, you know, prices have continued to go up. So it was all, it's a difficult payment to manage on and it, it really more should have been done in the last budget. And it is disappointing that the government are not willing to look at what they regard as core budgetary issues mm. to assist people to manage at this time. OK, and what about what they have done, the €200 Euro in energy and so on? That would be a help to everybody. Um, but in terms of, I suppose, just some of the the, the ongoing costs, and, and, and unfortunately at the moment, it looks like the only way is up, just given the variety of factors that seem to be influencing the, the, these rises in the cost of living. So that certainly will help people. It will help people, you know, cover that particular cost. But then, you know, there's challenges facing people around rent. There's challenges pay, facing people about food. So I think just the reality is, unfortunately, for the foreseeable future, the struggles facing people are going to increase. Mm, yeah, well, that's it. And this is as things stand, as you say, in the survey, obviously, uh, published on uh, the day that the government uh, announced its new set of measures. But we're told this is going to go on for a couple of years, it seems. Uh, and there's a lot of people listening to us now who aren't familiar with what happens uh, when you get inflation of this sort uh, and uh, how recession tends to follow. Uh, and so there could be some very tough times ahead. Unfortunately, yes. I mean, I know certainly last year a lot of, of economists were saying, oh, this was temporary, just a temporary blip in the road. It was particular factors. But unfortunately now it seems to be, yes, inflation as, as a country we mm. knew it uh, once upon a time. Um, and so, you know, I was, we were all hopeful those commenting last year were correct, but at the moment it does look like, unfortunately, this is a problem that is facing us and facing us for the foreseeable future, which means anybody on a fixed income is going to face increasing challenges because the value of that income is going to reduce 
as the cost of living goes up. So it really, it's a real challenge. It's yeah. not just facing Ireland, it's one facing you know many parts of the world. Yeah. But it is going to make life very difficult for anybody who is on a low and fixed income. It's bad now. It could get a whole lot worse. Uh, and there's a, a lot of unknowns. And if Putin invades the Ukraine on Wednesday, we could be in for some real shocks, I, I think, as a, a result of uh, an increase in the cost of gas and oil internationally. Well, if that, yes, does come to pass, uh, that certainly will, will, will make a big difference. But also, the, the full shakeout of Brexit, really, for this island, mm. really hasn't happened. We're still, you know, still issues, very practical issues have yet to be resolved, which will have an impact on our supply lines and then on our cost of living. So there's that issue as well, the lingering impact still of COVID. And as we saw just, you know, there about a year, two years ago, when that large shipping container got stuck in the Suez Canal and the chaos that mm, caused, mm. a relatively simple thing. But just we live in such a global world now that, you know, it, it's it's and everything is so interconnected that the way the dominoes fall can have such a, a, a wide impact and such a, a large range of people. Mm. Um, you know, it's, it's certainly something that, 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 you know, that kind of, that really is having an impact on people's daily lives. So it's, mm. it's the combination of all of those factors that have come together mm. that, um, that really are making life very difficult for people. And that's and it. On, yeah. That, that domino uh, effect can really uh, spiral out of control very quickly because if uh, the price of petrol goes up, so does uh, the cost of transport of foodstuffs. So the cost of foodstuffs goes up and so on and you can spiral out of control. Uh, and I think that's one of the arguments uh, that is being made and will be made in relation to pay claims. The unions are looking for 5.5% as things stand. Uh, and you were saying uh, that you were shortchanged in the last budget. Uh, as far as you're concerned, you were short a fiver in terms of an increase in core uh, rates uh, for the unemployed. Uh, is that still your position? Would a, a five euro increase suffice now? Possibly not, but at least it will be a move in the right direction. They also made a change to when people on the job seekers and the supplementary welfare allowance payment could be eligible for the for the fuel allowance. They were springing it in line with other payments. That change isn't due to come until September. If they brought that forward as well, that could also help. They could consider maybe doing something like they have, the, you know, the, the Christmas bonus, maybe having just a, a, a doing that earlier in the year um, and sooner rather than later. Again, that would cover a wider cross-section of people and could maybe just help people, you know, just cushion some of the impact of this. Mm. But certainly, yes, core rates have fallen behind and their purchasing power is not what it was. Mm. And that is something that needs to be seriously reviewed. Otherwise, people are going to find it harder and harder to make ends meet. And they're going to be making those trade-offs that the the Red Sea poll highlighted that people are currently making now. Yeah, which are not acceptable. Uh, It's not acceptable that you can't afford to eat and it's not acceptable that if you can afford to eat, you have to turn the heat off and the lights off and that sort of thing. Uh, And to decide between one or the other or both, as uh, the case may be for some people, really is not acceptable in a modern society in one of the richest countries in the world. Uh, yeah. But that is the situation, is it? And is it going to continue to be the situation and is it going to continue to get worse? Uh, just to mention uh, as well, or to ask you for your reaction to how ministers have been responding to concerns of that sort, uh, which is that there's always help there. You can go to see the community welfare officer. What do you think of that? Th- those, some, 
those supports are limited and sometimes if you're in a state of one type of support you might not get another type of support. It can depend on the person's family circumstances. And as this seems to be like an ongoing, an issue that will be with us, they really do need to revisit core payments and make eligibility for the fuel allowance, bring that change forward so that people can start access it sooner, that support sooner. So the re- I think, you know, the, the, the additional supports that are there, there are some, but by and large, they are emergency supports. And unfortunately, what this crisis appears to be is something that will be with us for the foreseeable future. And even more aggressively, at the moment, it seems that the way prices that really affect people's lives uh, and the the items that they need to and should be able to afford and be able to and need um, are are going up, and the long term effect on people's health and well being, uh, you know, that that cost both at a personal level but also at a communal level. So we really do need to try and ensure that we we don't leave people in dire circumstances facing awful challenges and awful struggles. Mm. It's not a, a case uh, of you being able to go to the community welfare office this week and next week and every week after. And by and large, that you know, depending again on the person's personal circumstances, the supports you're looking for, that isn't really an option. That can be there for particular items that you might need support with. Um, if something in particular breaks down in you or you have a very particular need that needs to be addressed. But by and large, if you're already in receipt of a payment, ongoing additional monetary supports are not really kind of what that service is there for. It's there for very particular people who fall through the cracks or maybe have particular unmet needs that are are particularly difficult to meet. Um, So I do think they really do need to revisit core social welfare rates and increase them so that people so that they give people that additional purchasing power that they so badly need at the moment. Mm. Okay, Uh, and things happen unexpectedly, of course, uh, and that's uh, quite often where the problem is. You might be just scraping by and then suddenly one of uh, the kids come home and uh, the sole is hanging off the shoes uh, and you can't send them out barefoot. You need a pair of shoes today. And that is where the, the, the supplementary welfare system should should assist people with that particular, you know, if there's a particular issue, a particular issue that you need to be addressed, if, say, the washing machine is gone or whatever, mm. they're, they're, they're particular supports that people should be able to access. Now, sometimes what they should be able to access and what they can doesn't always work out. But that's very much, there are, there are some supports there, they're limited, but there are some supports there to help people with those particular challenges. Um, uh, and And I think the system really does need to be looking at well how can it be supportive of people to ensure that nobody finds themselves in that awful situation. Okay, A woman in touch with us uh, telling us uh, that she's a single mother she's two children, a single mum of two Uh, she asked St Vincent de Paul for help uh, she said she felt very ashamed. Uh, I think uh, someone had said, uh, you've been on to us before, and uh, I think that may have made things worse. Uh, and uh, she's saying at the moment uh, she's struggling, uh, but she's so ashamed of having gone to St. Vincent de Paul that she doesn't want to go back to them. That's a, a desperate situation. Uh, is that uh, the kind of story that uh, you've been hearing from people recently, Breed? Um, unfortunately, yes, some people can't, you know, and very understandably, people often maybe feel I should be able to manage, I should have enough income, I should be able to, you know, provide for my kids, and people can't feel, 
uncomfortable or, or, or as that lady said, ashamed to, to ask for help. There, there are charities there that are there to assist people and to help people. And I think it is important that people feel comfortable that they can go to them. I think most of them would like to feel people could feel comfortable going to them. But certainly, as I think, I think that's why it is so important mm. that social welfare system supports people properly and adequately so people don't need to go elsewhere and feel that they can manage and can manage on their own two feet. Okay, that's and maybe, maybe we can finish on that point. And health and well-being, I think just that, is, that is just so important. Sure, but maybe we can finish on that point, Breed, because uh, that's not going to happen. Uh, I think that's clear, at least that's the position as it stands, yeah. that there it no. will be no budget, no mini-budget, nothing will happen before the next budget in October. Uh, would you ask the government to rethink that position? I think they need to be realistic around it. You know, um, that that's something that I think that, that there, there's always, I think they have a concern that somehow if, if they look at one thing, their budgetary package will all unravel. But I think at the moment, just the circumstances people find themselves in, I think they really do need to revisit core social welfare rates okay. and that they need to be improved. Okay. Otherwise, a lot of people are, people are struggling now and regret, unfortunately, that struggle is not going to lessen in the foreseeable future. It's likely to get worse. Okay, it's going to be a long six months or so. Breed, we leave it there for the moment. Thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme this morning. Breed O'Brien is Head of Policy and Media with the INOU. That's the Irish National Organisation for the Unemployed. Michael Michael Reed on LMFM. Now let's talk about false insurance claims or claims uh, for compensation which will be stamped out under new legislation if it is uh, transposed into law. Let's hear a little bit about it. Independent Senator Ronan Mullen is on the line and a very good morning to you and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. You're saying it should be a criminal offence to give false or exaggerated statements to the personal injuries assessment board. Well, that's right, Michael. As your listeners will know, the Personal Injuries Assessment Board, or PIAB, was set up in 2003, going since 2004. And basically, the idea was to keep personal injury cases out of court, to keep legal costs down, hopefully to drive down insurance premiums, among other things, and to get people access to just compensation for injuries suffered um, in a more timely fashion. And PIAB has achieved a lot in that regard. Um, You know, they, they, they make about 26, 27,000 awards a, a year, um, about 200 million given out in, in, in 2020. Um, basically, what happens is you make an app, if you have a personal injuries claim arising out of motor uh, accident or per, employer's liability or, or, or public liability situation, you make your application to, to PIAB. If the other side agrees to PIAB assessing it, then PIAB makes an assessment. And if the other side agrees to the award that's made, then that's fine. If they don't agree either to the assessment or the award, it ends up in court anyway. Mm. But we're all aware that there's a certain amount of, of, of fraud, there's a certain amount of false claiming, and it's interesting that the courts are well set up to deal with that. It's very clearly a serious offence uh, if you perjure yourself or if you um, knowingly bring forward false information in the context of a court action. Um, but the strange thing is that it's not an offence to give false information uh, if when you're making your PIA application or indeed when you're dealing with it, if you're the other side or mm. if you're a third party giving information uh, to PIA. And, um So it's an offence to lie to the courts, but it's not a, an offence to lie to PIAP. Exactly. And if you look at, for example, applications for nursing home support or applications or 
dealings yeah. with the revenue or applications to, you know, the Department of Social Protection. In all those situations, there are provisions that you're committing an offence if you knowingly give false information. Mm. And my, I think it's, it's an anomaly, a lacuna, if you like, that there is no such um, requirement on people to be truthful in their application or in their dealings with PIAB. And that's what my private member's bill is doing. It says it's, it's an offence if you knowingly give false information. Will it make any difference? Uh, and I suppose the reason I'm asking you that is that there's so many people who lie to the courts where it is an offence. Well, I suppose when you have law in place, it, there's two ideas here. One is that if, if evidence comes to light, uh, that, that, that there is punishment. And the hope is then that that acts as a deterrent. In other words, if people know that it is against the law, if I knowingly give false information, the reason I say knowingly is PIAB was set up to you know, allow people not to have to deal with, with lawyers. Okay? Now, in many cases, and perhaps in most cases, applications to PIAB do involve solicitors. But you have to allow for a situation where an ordinary person is making a claim, they might naively or, or accidentally give false information. I, I, want, I want to make sure that it's only if it's, if it's knowingly that false information was given that it would be an offence. Mm. It's hard to quantify. You know, a lot of cases, <coughs> PIA makes no award. Is mm. that because they suspect that there was uh, false information? I don't know. We don't have the information. It might just be that the case doesn't have merit. Um, but, but I think it's fair to say that there have been it's known that there have been cases where um, wrongdoing in this area has come to light in terms of people's dealings with the courts. And, um, and, and, and as I said, the hope would be that the law would, would act as a deterrent in this area. Mm. Well, how many times have we heard about people uh, who've been in an accident and have said that there was nothing wrong with them until they got legal advice and then they've a collar on and they're claiming whiplash? That's right. Now, the other side of this is, and I want to be very clear about it, I support people's right to get justice and to get an appropriate um, award made where, you know, they have suffered a wrong and that that wrong is the responsibility of somebody else. You know, I'm not anti-claimant, but I think there's a burden, you know, the the obligation to be truthful shouldn't be an an intolerable um, burden uh, on on any side. Well, the other problem is, is that we're all fed up with the cost of insurance. And I mean, we're talking about the cost of living and all of that, if the cost of insurance could be brought down, it would be easier to afford our groceries and our petrol and all of that. Uh, But when somebody makes a a false claim, that feeds into what I have to pay in in insurance. So if that's stamped out, uh, undoubtedly that will help. And uh, like the fellows with uh, the whiplash and the collars and all of that, we quite often hear of people who can't walk or can't do everyday things until somebody finds them on Facebook out doing marathons. Yeah, I mean, and, and, and clearly the other side of this is there's an obligation on insurance companies to work to drive down premiums. I mean, certainly PIAB has, um, to judge by the figures, if you take an average award, let's say, in a motor case, 22, 23,000, um, according to PIAB's figures, you know, the legal costs of that, you know, such in the, the, the administration and legal costs, if you like, of that dealing with PIAB would take that award up to 24,000. That would be the cost, if you like, of the claim. Whereas if that case went to court, the cost would be about 40,000. So you can see where there is a saving if PIAB is able to resolve things and therefore an obligation on those mm-hmm. insurance companies in particular to drive down premiums reflecting that. But you can imagine a situation, let's say, in an employment situation where you could have collusion. Uh, say, for example, somebody makes a claim, say, 
say there's an employee of the of the of the organisation, the shop or whatever it is they're making a claim against, who colludes in that, and therefore false information is put before PIAB. PIAB, let's say, don't make an award and it goes on to court, and let's say then the person, okay, well they're not going to perjure themselves; they're afraid mm. of the law. But there's no sanction for having knowingly tried to deceive PIAB in that case. Okay. But do you know, uh, so, so it, it, you know, it's difficult to know exactly when fraud is happening. But the point is, the law should make it clear up front: if you do this, if it comes to light, you will be prosecuted. There will be a yeah. consequence. Uh, another problem, uh, and uh, I think it's a very real problem, is that quite often insurance companies will say it's cheaper to pay for the false claim uh, than to defend it. That's right. And I was I was talking to somebody in business who was making that precise point to me. Uh, and again, you know, you, you, you can't create a perfect world in this, this situation. But again, if the law is clear um, that, that, that making false claims mm. at any stage, it, it, you know, could have serious consequences. Um, but, if, but if it costs you an arm and a leg to prove that, uh, yeah. you're, going, you're talking about insurance companies, people who are, are looking at these cases, not from a, a moral perspective, uh, but they're looking at it through the lens of a calculator uh, and they're saying, we'll settle. That's right. And I was talking to one restaurant owner who was making that pr- precise point. Like he wanted the case to go on. He was co- convinced that it was completely bogus. But it's somewhere between, you know, the insurance company and the lawyers for both sides, the recommendation was made to settle this. Do you know, so they, they, that's that's very frustrating when people believe that there are, you know, dodgy claims. Now, again, it, it would be wrong just to go off on one and suggest that mm. all claims are dodgy. I think we always have to keep in mind that people are entitled to justice. People are entitled to just compensation for injuries they suffer where they have been wronged. And that's it's important to always keep that in our head mm. because mm. It, it would, it, there'd be a danger on the other side of kind of creating an environment where everybody thinks every claim is false and that obviously yeah. suits a certain agenda. You uh, well, absolutely. But, uh, I mean, in tandem with, <laughs> I suppose, a, a desire to stamp out that compo culture. Exactly, exactly. And I think that's what, that, that's, that's what you want to see. You can't guarantee that, as I say, that the law being there will, will, achieve, will achieve, you know, where, where you want to go. But hopefully the law acts as a deterrent to wrongdoers. And I think just mm. it's kind of stark that the, 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 the law is so serious on, on perjury once things get into court. Yeah. Uh, it, was, it was always an offence under court, may, under common law, in other words. Mm case precedent in court but uh, my former colleague Senator Porrick O'Cage initiated a process that, that, that put the legislation against the offence of perjury into into statute law as I said there remains this gap and this is my private mm. member's bill uh, the Minister by the way is bringing forward other legislation around PIAB, uh, he took my this is Minister Robert Troy, took my debate the other day in the Shannon, the government is not opposing it but I would be looking for the government now to give, give some parliamentary time to let us um, bring this legislation through uh, the Shannon. And by the way, the offence is it, 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 the, off- the consequence, if you like, of the offence if successfully prosecuted, it mirrors those in those other cases I described where you would knowingly give false information mm-hmm. to social welfare or whatever, so it would be a maximum of €3,000 or six months custodial. So again, I, I haven't gone for you know a draconian piece of law. I've gone for something that mirrors what's there already in other situations. Okay. We'll leave it there for the moment. Thank you indeed for joining us today. That's Independent Senator Ronan Mullen. 
Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, as you probably have heard, members of the Oireachtas TDs and Senators are to be advised about uh, their personal security. Uh, let's talk a little bit about this uh, with retired Detective Inspector Pat Murray. A very good morning to you, Pat Murray, and thanks uh, indeed uh, for joining us on the programme this morning. Uh, this is somewhat unusual in terms of Irish politics, isn't it? I don't think there's ever been that sense of uh, fear that would be associated with this type of public representation uh, previous to recent years. No, that's correct. But I think we have to look across the water to see what happened to some of the politicians there, like Joe Cox and uh, going back to 1990, Ian Gow and that. uh, And then recently, let's say in Ireland, where you've had protests outside politicians' house, like I think Stephen Donnelly, Leo Varadka, mm. um, and I think Dr. Tony Hoolan was subject to that type of carry-on, mm. and our own very Joe Duffy. So, um, uh, and as, as, as uh, the Minister has said, um, that uh, people should have uh, safe spaces, like, you know, so th- go, it's a step too far to be protesting outside a politician's house, because not only that, you're upsetting neighbours and the politician's family and that, and it's not, it's not acceptable, like, you know. Yeah, do you think part of the problem is the internet? Uh, because we've always had uh, questionable characters knocking about, and you'd know that better than anybody, but I think the difference today might be that they're coming together and organising on the internet. Yeah, that's 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 true. But uh, what I would say in respect to what the response to let's say uh, to the politicians' safety, and I think the Gardaí are going to uh, uh, a point in each like in each division they have a divisional crime prevention officer who is a highly trained member with all the skill sets to be able to advise a politician uh, on their safety and safety measures, not just at their house but where they may socialise and in particular uh, constituency offices which, you know, are quite vulnerable uh, you know Mm. and uh, I think the Guardian are taking the right steps and I think the the Minister has uh, the the right attitude Uh, she says that uh, she likes to have safe spaces for people and that is correct Mm. It depends uh, on the level of threat though, doesn't it? I mean, we were talking about uh, rural Ireland not so long ago where you could leave the back door open and everybody did and there was no risk Uh, so uh, there was no risk because there wasn't that level of threat and it would have been the same in recent times with politicians there was no risk because there wasn't that level of threat it seems as though the type of people that you're talking about can be very aggressive Uh, some of uh, the stuff that happened at those protests outside of Leo Vratker's house and Simon Harris's and Stephen Donnelly's uh, and Tony Ulan's. imagine people going to protest outside the chief medical officer's house and call them names Uh, but they seem to be very aggressive and all have a chip on their shoulder Uh, and therein lies the threat doesn't it exactly and if you look at poor joe cox she was the subject of a stabbing that came out of nowhere so uh, like politicians have to sort of weigh up their uh, the situation like they're, they're in and they, they like they, they they do have a vulnerability because of the positions that they hold and they're in the public eye and they may not always be uh, the subject of good comment on the basis of maybe decisions they made or what way their their their, their politics is lying. But mm. um, 
and and and, and I think that uh, and I, you alluded to it yourself there. There is a cohort of people who organise things on the internet and that, but that's all being looked at now at the moment. I think by the Oireachtas on the basis that uh, you know politicians don't feel safe about putting their home addresses uh, uh, up on on uh, their material and that yeah. you know. And and I, I would be in favour of knocking back, and I'll tell you why. Right. And I had dealt with cases myself where. Yeah. Uh, one particular case in Drogheda where a family were kidnapped and held to ransom and uh, the perpe- people who perpetrated that gathered all their information from uh, the internet on the person, the subject they wanted to kidnap and it was all there for, for, for it was made very easy for the criminal gang. So I mm. would be very much in favour of putting as little detail as possible about yourself on the internet. Uh, right, I think that's very sad. I really do. I mean, I want to pick up my phone uh, as a citizen privately and call a local TD, just be able to get their number and say, listen, um, I'm some concerns uh, about uh, people who might kidnap people in the town because they're getting information on the internet or whatever my concerns are. Uh, or, or to say, thanks for getting that job done or, or whatever, you know. Uh, and it's yeah. uh, part and yeah, parcel of yeah, the job yeah, that you're I, there 24 hours a day for your constituents because you represent yeah. them. You're a public representative. Yeah, I, I, I know a politician quite well. He's a, he's a friend of mine and uh, uh, a TD. And like, uh, it's only since I got to know him that I realised like, the, the amount of work that these people put in for the benefit of, let's say, society and the, 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 the area of responsibility they hold mm. and the times they spend away from home and the times they spend in their office and then they have their constituency office like they put in an enormous amount of hours and it sort of opened my eyes to let's say uh, like I was never any big fan of politicians but uh, I would say that from what I see now from this this guy I know well he he, he works like you know nearly 24 hours a day like you know they all do they, they, I mean yeah, at, at the expense yeah. of family life and whatever like you know but um, uh, and I think they deserve the protection that the state can give them like you know mm. but uh, it's a, a sad state of affairs and I, I don't know what's going on mm. in the world but the type of protests that you talk about or, or spoke about earlier on they're the same sort of people who are causing problems in Canada at the moment and in closing down cities and in New Zealand and uh, it seems as though that's extended into France hasn't it uh, and yeah. there are all these people they, they, they actually consider themselves to be political uh, and there's this madness attached to them you know and the self-righteousness attached to them they talk about the constitution and our constitutional yeah. rights and they're holier than thou and these bloody politicians and, and I mean as you've just uh, uh, really explained well how hard politicians work for people rather than these people who, who sit in their back sides all day giving out uh, on keyboards on the internet and telling us how the world should be run if only they do something about it rather than attacking people exactly but you have their headbangers and that's it like and we've seen the renter crowd whatever you want to call them and they don't make sense they're not logical and we've seen our own cohort of uh, Irish citizens uh, engaging in that type of uh, carry on and even outside the courts and protesting with no masks at the height of the yeah Hmm. And then, like, you have to sort of say, well, look, at, you know, and in all fairness, the government and the likes of Tony Houlihan and those have, have really done their best for us hmm. and guided us as best they can. And you have to sort of say, well, look, at yeah, we take our guidance from you and we, hmm. you know, and, but, you know, and just that's just the way it is. Like, I'm just an ordinary citizen and I'm just looking at things from a, a Joe So point of view. And I think they've done a, a reasonably good job, you know. Hmm. And uh, I think 
the likes of Tony Hoolan, he shouldn't have to go home some evening and find a mob outside his front gate, like roaring and shouting abuse at him and his family and that. No, no, and, it's not and, acceptable. And then there's the knock-on effect because when you have people who aren't acting in a way that's acceptable by any standard of decency, uh, then you've got to call into question civil rights, you know, (laughs) and bring in restrictions that wouldn't be there in place, uh, that wouldn't be in place otherwise. Uh, uh, And it really is a a vicious circle. But um, given the mindset, what, what did you call them? Headbangers? Um, oh yeah, headbangers, rent a crowd, whatever you want to yeah. call them. The people that as a police, know, as a policeman, though, uh, I mean, if you were charged uh, with uh, giving security to a, a politician, knowing that there was headbangers out there and that they could uh, become a, a danger to the person that you're in charge of, uh, how difficult a, a job do you think that would be, or how vulnerable well, do you think the politicians yeah. are? To put that another way. Yeah, well, I think they, they know the job they're doing and they know that they're interacting with the public on a daily basis and they know that they have that there's a degree of vulnerability. But I think, too, with the Gardaí advising them on security measures and uh, will certainly give them more confidence to continue in, you know, doing their constituency work and that. But like what, what I would say is that um, you never know, you know, there's always the, the one head case that, that will sort of like assault a politician or whatever like you know mm. and can you uh, police against that possibly not unless the politician has a fear himself to say well look there's a guy comes in here da 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 and then it may be a case that if that person is going to be in close proximity to the politician at a later stage uh, a guard of presence can be you know can mm. be arranged which I don't think would be any big difficulty um, but look uh, it's it's one of those things um, where the Division of Crime Scene Prevention Officers will, will, will you know talk to each politician mm. in their area and um, all of those things will be hammered out you know yeah. and put in place and an and assault out of the blue is one oh. thing but if weapons are involved it's a, another thing is ah, yeah. yeah it's absolutely yeah Mm. Is, is there anything you can do to preempt that? Uh, if, if well, you well, no. It's 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 like you know, if you have a, a constituent who who is is very irate at something, not not getting a payment or not getting a house or whatever, not getting a pothole, going mm. outside his house or something, and have become let's say over the top. Yeah. Uh, you see, I don't think that's where I don't think that's where the threat is. It's I mean, maybe it is. I, you, I mean, you, you're you're the expert, um, but I, I I would think that there's a, a risk if there's a, a, any risk, but a, a real risk from some of these headbangers, as you call them. Yeah, well, that's that's it. But I think that'll all come into the uh, Division of Crime Prevention Officers plan to assess everything with each politician, like you know, mm, yeah. and I think that, that like you know. A, obviously a plan would be put in place or whatever like you know mm. but there are like you know you can put up extra cameras you can yeah. all that type of stuff you know but if a fellow walks into your office with a knife like you know mm. and he's intent on causing you damage like you know it's it's very hard to yeah I, I suppose that the, the thing is he may be less inclined to do that if he knows there's cameras on them and that he'll well, end up in prison it. as a yeah. result yeah okay exactly yeah yeah and like you know that's and that's it and the Gardaí do a good job and the, they have a good uh, uh, crime prevention uh, strategy like you know and if, uh, you know they are they are quite good and they have all the let's say not all the knowledge but they have all the 
reputable companies that they can rely on, let's say, to put in alarms, to put in, uh, you know, panic attack alarms and that type of stuff, like, you know. So, okay, yeah. Uh, it wouldn't be left to politicians themselves to, to, to let's say, find out I have to get a guy I can trust now to put in an alarm here or something. Like, mm. the crime prevention officer will be able to give that advice, like, you know. Okay. Uh, so, like, there, there are a lot yeah. of positives, but yes... Uh, politicians should have this uh, uh, review of their security and I think it'll make them a lot more uh, relaxed in respect knowing that there's you know they have uh, let's say uh, procedures in place mm. in respect of anything that might happen or whatever yeah, like. and confidence in that confidence yeah. and, the, and the guards are there and they do a yeah. good job and they, 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 they are not going to leave uh, you know politicians mm. Stranded, like you know, with crowds of people outside their gates shouting. And I think the, I think there's one of the politicians at the moment looking at uh, law to bring in law in respect to particular protests mm. uh, like that. You know, now I don't know what, I don't think it's um, yeah. fully drawn up yet. But look at, uh, uh, you know, as I say, it's it's sad that it, you know it has to be looked at. Like you know, but look, that's. Yeah, uh, and like safe zones around abortion services, uh, there can be all sorts of constitutional problems. These things are never straightforward when it comes to the law never and the constitution. No, no, okay. no, no, all right, no, Pat, look, no, no, no. We, we leave it there for the moment. Yeah. Uh, it's a, a, an odd conversation, or a relatively odd conversation, relatively new conversation, and a, a sign of the times. But that is uh, the situation that we're living through, where TDs and senators need to think about their personal safety. Thank you very much indeed uh, for joining us uh, this morning. Pat Murray, retired detective inspector. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, there was a story in uh, the Sunday Business Post uh, yesterday which would have been of interest, I think, to everybody in County Mead, but particularly to people in Summer Hill, Slane, Athboy, and Dunshockland. Eyebrows will have raised as people realise that councillors in the county have been ordered by the Minister for Planning to reverse a decision to rezone a number of sites for development. Michael Brennan has the story. He's on the line with us. And a very good morning to you, Michael, and thanks for joining us on the programme this morning. Uh, Why is it that Peter Burke has ordered councillors to reverse their decisions? This started, Michael, uh, last summer with the Office of the Planning Regulator. That's a body that reviews all the new development plans from councils and checks basically are they in line with with good planning guidelines. And they flagged up issues with the the draft development plan that Eid County Council has been working on for quite some time. It'll it'll determine the development of need up to 2027. And as a result, councils were advised to change some things in their plan they didn't. And then Peter Burke, as you mentioned, the Minister for, for Local Government and Planning, he sent them a direction saying, basically, you must change your plan, particularly one of the reasons was some of the development they'd authorised and rezoning was on land with a flood risk. And that was, uh, they now have to change the plan as, as a result. Right. Uh, and that's what you'd call executive power. But the councillors had been warned that that was the case, had they not? They had There's a very complicated process here where once the planning regulator issues a warning, the council then has to alert the councillors. It has to draw up a report from Jackie Maguire, the Meath County Council Chief Executive. And she, from my reading, pretty much recommended the councillors accept the recommendations of the regulator and reverse their rezonings in in some parts of Meath for development. Uh, They did accept, it looks like, a lot of the recommendations from the planning regulator 
they didn't ignore all of them. But several of them, they stuck to their guns. And then as a result, Peter Burke stepped in. Right. Uh, and we're talking about uh, developments uh, that people would generally think would be great. They'd enhance the local community, like housing for older people in Summerhill, I think, uh, community uh, use, land to be used for community use in Athboy, and uh, rezoning of land for a motorway service station in Dunshockland. And all that's well and good, uh, but the fear here is if you go ahead with those projects, they're going to be underwater. That's exactly it, Michael. I, I think when I looked at the development plan and some of these rezonings that were proposed, they weren't, you know, the, the intention behind them in a lot of cases was good. As you mentioned, you know, housing for elderly people, you know, who could disagree with that? And it's definitely badly needed. The problem is, though, if you build it in the wrong place and you do have, we're having more of these once in a century flood events now in places where there was never flooding, all of a sudden there is flooding. And Sean Drew, the, the Cahirlick of Mead County Council, made the point to me, a lot of local councillors you know, went by local knowledge, people who told them there's never been flooding in that site. But the expert advice was from people who surveyed it was that that is a flood risk site. And, and ultimately, it's the expert advice the, the planning regulator goes by rather than the fact that there may never have been flooding there before. Mm. Um, so they were advised uh, and they uh, responded uh, by rejecting that advice. Advice. Uh, what would you know? Because people locally are, are saying otherwise. Uh, it seems very questionable, uh, the process, doesn't it? Yeah, I, I think one difference here, though, Michael, is that the Office of the Planning Regulator wasn't in existence, say, five or six years ago when the previous Mead County Development Plan would be put in, pla- in place. Mm. So there is this new process now where there's like an independent watchdog checking not just Mead, but every other county council as they go through their plans. So it is not safe because local councillors, they're very connected to the community, which is a huge strength, but they can also be under a lot of pressure. You know, if mm. the community want a particular site, say a school pitch or elderly housing, they sometimes maybe feel the need to back that. But there's a regulator now to say, yes, we know your your intentions may be good, but let's not build on that floor. And I suppose that's the experience uh, that we have uh, where you've had uh, projects completed in what were flood risk zones and ended up being flooded. Uh, and I, I gather that that's the intention of this change to stop that from happening again from councillors making bad decisions or decisions for the wrong reasons uh, for uh, that pressure because of that pressure that's been put on them locally rather than thinking uh, in the long term and what uh, could result uh, from uh, rezoning in this sense. Uh, Why is it though that the councillors can reject the advice? I mean if they can reject the uh, uh, advice uh, it seems to me as though the process is flawed if it's are going to end up in a situation where uh, the advice has to be taken on board? I, I suppose the thinking is, Michael, in terms of local democracy and, and keeping power closest to the, the local voter. Yeah. They vote in their representative act on their behalf. And there are obviously a lot of people who probably want some of those, those uh, rezonings made in those particular local areas. But then the safeguard is you've got a planning regulator to guard against it. I, I think, you know, the, the system is not perfect, but, but still having that, the local councillors having the power to, to basically make submissions on, on, on their local council development and then make decisions. Mm. I still think that's a principle work. 
Uh, despite it being against that uh, advice, uh, and I take it that there could be other consequences uh, to this. Uh, I mean, if somebody has had agricultural land rezoned for housing, uh, they could be uh, a little bit out of sorts uh, to hear that that has been overturned and reversed. Yeah, I I, think one of the, I didn't get to touch to this in my article, but one of the controversies I know there's been in need in the past year has been that a lot of land has been dezoned that was previously zoned as residential is now put down as lower priority because the feeling was there was too much housing land in, in the county zoned for housing and not being developed on. And that was difficult for councillors, but in fairness, I'm told they did accept a lot of the, the arguments behind that and, you know, the... The, the amount of zoned land in the current plant is is a lot less, mm. but but is still supposed to be enough to provide for, for all the housing that that's needed in the county. Maybe so, but the value of the land has uh, dropped, plummeted, uh, and I'm sure there's landowners who aren't happy about that. Oh, you're absolutely correct, uh, Michael, and and you're going to see a bit more this next year when this new uh, zoned land tax comes in, where you know people will be charged a, a levy. Uh, of 3% initially if they're not building housing on their residential land. That's again going to cause protests among landowners and so on. But but again, it's badly needed because I'm certain you would be aware of land in Mead and elsewhere that would be perfect for housing, just isn't being built on, unfortunately. All right, we'll leave it there for the moment. Uh, Thank you, as always, uh, for joining us uh, this morning. Michael Brennan is uh, the political editor of the Sunday Business Post. Michael Reed on LMFM. Let me bring you some of uh, the calls and texts that have been coming to us uh, this morning. Thanks to Margaret, uh, who's texted us today. And she says, the faceless internet warriors are cowards behind the screen and the government needs to act now to legislate against all of their lies and their BS that's posted on the internet. No other media outlet would be let away with it. They can and would be sued. That's the other media would be Uh, sued if uh, they were to put up the kind of lies that you see on the internet is what Margaret is saying and she says it's uh, the cause of a a lot of the protests that are going on now and the best way to keep your private life private is to stay off it. Uh, She says I don't uh, like or trust it and I'm staying that way. Thanks Margaret. I'm really disappointed to hear that. That's uh You know, one of uh, the things uh, that shouldn't be happening, because the internet is a wonderful tool, and you should be able to use the internet, Margaret. Uh, I know Margaret uh, from her messages uh, to the programme. She texts us quite often and always has a a lot of interesting points to make, and it would seem to me from your messages, Margaret, uh, to have enough sense not to be listening to the kind of BS, as you put it in your message, that's going on on the internet. So I think you'd be safe enough on the internet because you just wouldn't listen to that nonsense. You'd roll your eyes, throw them up to heaven and so on. And I think you would be safe on the internet. But I think you do make a valid point at the same time that there's a lot of propaganda, false news, fake news, whatever these modern expressions are for telling lies on the internet and people being gullible enough to believe those lies, that they're buying into it and it's leading to a lot of these protests. And to the kind of conversation we had this morning about TDs, and senators needing to think about their personal security. Madness altogether. Uh, somebody else in touch with Thanks, by the way, Margaret, for your text. Somebody else in touch with us saying it's not the insurance premium's fault that we can't afford fuel at the pumps, Michael. That solely lies on the government's shoulders. It's the government's fault, says our caller. OK, thanks indeed. <laughs> I'm sure... 
the cost of petrol has nothing to do with the cost of insurance. The point I was making was that if you didn't have to pay as much the extortionate amount that you have to pay out in insurance, you'd have more money in your pocket and the extortionate price of the petrol, if you like, wouldn't be as much of a problem. It would be more affordable because you'd have more money, if that makes sense. <laughs> uh, we'd uh, Somebody else in touch with us uh, saying the Guardi are doing their best. It's the justice system that's failing this country. When it comes to sentencing, they know that they'll get off easy. 20 years for breaking and entry. Uh, before they take anything or harm anyone. Zero tolerance is what's needed. Nobody should have to live in fear, says our caller. Thank you indeed. Uh, Strong thoughts there. throw away the key kind of attitude zero tolerance kind of attitude John in Navin was in touch with us uh, thanks uh, John he says at last Navin Trust decides to discontinue the memorial wall due to vandalism as the wall was to contain the names of British soldiers Royal Irish Constabulary and Black and Tans who came up with that brilliant idea to honour the same people who caused mayhem destruction murder amongst the Irish people Pearson Collins must be turning over in their graves this would be like a uh, plaque on Jerusalem's wailing wall honouring all deceased members of the SS who died during the Jewish uprising in Warsaw, says John. Thanks very much, John. Uh, Some very strong thoughts there. Let's go to the phones. Uh, Another John, uh, from John in Navan to John in Drogheda. John in Drogheda was on uh, the phone to us. He says, unless we start really punishing criminals in this country, the type of attacks that we've been hearing about on elderly people recently will never stop. The perpetrators are getting off too lightly. We need tougher sentencing, not just a rap on the knuckles. If they thought they'd be put away for a long time, they might think twice about it. John says he's over 80 himself. He says you have to be on your guard all the time. And John is constantly making sure that everything is locked up all of the time. As an extra security measure, he put in a porch door which is locked so if someone knocks on his door he can open the front door and see who is there before unlocking the porch door. He knows of a a man who opened his front door uh, and uh, he tells us there were two women there. They pretended they knew him and they pushed him into the hall. Two other guys then came in after them and then they robbed him. You can never be too careful. That's really dreadful John. Thanks, uh, Thanks for your call. Thanks for telling us that story. It really is dreadful. Uh, elderly people. I mean, um, it's just a, a simple matter of uh, respect. I, I, I don't know. Um, apart from uh, the fact that you shouldn't do that to anybody, how could anybody do it to an elderly person? Uh, they are cowards, as Margaret said earlier. Uh, Anne in Mead uh, says these type of attacks put the fear of God into our senior citizens. Uh, well, I think uh, John's comment has put uh, the fear of God into me, Anne. Uh, She says, my mother lives on her own and she's been quite nervous over the past week. She lives in a rural area while she has a house alarm. She is very careful about who she answers the door to and it's a big worry for her. People should feel safe in their homes, especially elderly people. Neighbours need to watch out for each other And the Justice Minister should look now at rural areas and how they're being policed. Maybe if there were more patrol cars policing the countryside, there wouldn't be the same opportunity for this type of crime. Thanks very much, Anne, uh, for sharing those thoughts with us as well. Uh, It's good to be getting so many comments, uh, especially about this, uh, because I think it's something that we kind of all live with without thinking about, or it's sort of in our subconscious, but we're maybe not consciously thinking about it until you get these high-profile things and then it comes to the fore again. Uh, But it's when you hear a bump in the middle of the night that you think about it and you mightn't say anything to anybody the next day because nothing happened 
uh, but you're hoping that it won't happen the next time there's a bump at the night. Mary has been in touch with us, though, about the cost of living. And Mary says all of the discussions that are taking place about money and the lack of money, nobody has mentioned the property tax. Why didn't they get rid of that? This is a burden that I have and it would make a huge difference to me if it was gone. Thanks uh, for that, Mary. Uh, another interesting idea about the cost of living, although uh, the government has said they're not going to do anything until the next budget. They won't do any more until the next budget. Peter is in Drogheda and he uh, has a similar uh, kind of outlook on all of this. He says he's just wondering why is it that we're still paying the universal social charge? Uh, was the USC not supposed to be a temporary measure? I think a lot of people would be much better off if it was ended. Thanks, Peter Andrade, for your call. There's a lot of temporary measures that are introduced on a temporary basis that uh, become permanent, aren't there? Uh, Terry says, it's hardly surprising about the number of violent attacks on elderly people and how that's growing when there's very little to deter the criminals from carrying out these horrible acts. Thanks for your call, Terry. Terry says, to hear what some of the victims have suffered would turn your stomach. Yet, when the perpetrators are caught, they face little or pitiful punishment. The book should be thrown at them. Terry says, in extreme attacks, they should never be allowed to see the light of day again. They terrorise their victims, they leave them living in fear, and the punishment should fit the crime. Thank you, Terry, for your call as well. Thanks to Una too. Una has been in touch with us. And Una says the politicians can never really understand how much people are struggling right now. She says she and her husband both work full time and have relatively good salaries and they still struggle on occasion from time to time. So she wonders, how is it uh, if you're not working full time and you don't have a good salary like her self and her husband? How is it uh, that you're meant to cope if you're a single income uh, household or single parent family? Uh, and how is it that you can keep things together? It must be a constant battle and an exhausting one at that. I think uh, you probably have hit the nail on the head there, Una. Thanks for sharing your thoughts with us. John and Navin has been in touch too, so thanks, John, for your call. He says he's a little confused about what he's hearing on the radio this morning. We've borrowed billions over the past two years and the cost of living package has cost well over a billion and there appears to be a lot of money available in the economy at the moment. We're also seeing that almost a quarter of the food bought is wasted on a weekly basis. Why is it then, John, wonders, uh, so many people are struggling? Uh, he's struggling to understand how many people are experiencing hardship uh, and there's more money than ever before in the economy and more going to waste than ever before. I think it's to do with inflation rising at 5.5%. The people who have money have plenty of money and they've been saving it up through COVID and they're not worried, but it's the people uh, who haven't had an increase and the cost of everything has gone up by 5.5% that are finding it hard to cope because... Uh, they were scraping by, I think, John, and now uh, prices have gone through the roof. Uh, Joyce in touch with us too, and Joyce wants to talk about the number of attacks on elderly people in recent weeks as well. She thinks that there should be a whole set of new punishments set up to deal with those who carry out those crimes. They deserve to feel the full force of the law for their actions because they destroy the victims' lives and they leave many of them too scared to continue living in their own homes. 
That echoes uh, what a lot of people have been saying, Joyce, doesn't it? Thank you uh, for sharing your thoughts with us as well. Let me bring you a couple of emails uh, that have uh, come to us uh, over the last couple of days. One came to us on Friday from Teresa Riley uh, about uh, the cost of living. Uh, If you were listening to us, uh, you'd have heard our conversation with Minister Damien English. And Minister Damien English was saying, if you find yourself in a situation where there is just no money, uh, and you have to make horrible decisions and you're in a real crisis. Well, there is money, he said, because you can always go to the community welfare officer. And there was a lot of reaction to uh, the minister saying that. Um, Teresa emailed us and she said, Dear God, give this government a brain and a soul. Damien Englishes and Michael McGrath referring people in need to their community welfare officer as a solution to poverty is contemptible. And Sean Fleming telling people to shop around is equally so. Clearly none of them have experienced having to embarrassingly beg from a community welfare officer. It's particularly reprehensible of Damien English because he said his father was a welfare officer. This government is so out of touch with the nation on every topic. One wonders, do they ever move out of their cosseted and elitist circles? I know they claim to be speaking to constituents, but... Uh, they must have a selective few. Uh, And it looks like they are deliberately screwing up the country so badly because they know they'll be out in the next election. Uh, And then what they're doing, uh, Theresa says, is maliciously making the job harder for the next government, making it impossible for the next government. And she said she's sick of this horror. On the same subject, a text that came to us uh, before we went off air on Friday from Lisa, who said she had the misfortune of having to go to a welfare officer. This is one of the community welfare officers uh, when she was in dire need with two young children having just left an abusive relationship. Lisa said she was treated badly. Uh, She felt that she was treated with contempt and suspicion, that she was trying to claim money that she wasn't entitled to. Lisa said I was never on social welfare in my life up to that point and I wouldn't wish the situation I was in on anyone and to be made feel like a scam artist and to leave the welfare office on the verge of tears with no idea of what to do next. It's something I'll never forget and Lisa said the system is absolutely broken. Strong thoughts there. I just want to bring you one more comment uh, for the moment uh, and I'm not sure how many people uh, identify with uh, this. Uh, I think uh, we'll all identify with some of it. Some of it will identify with more of it than others and some of it uh, may uh, identify with everything that Paula said in her email to us. Uh, She says... um, I just wanted to bring to your attention, Michael, as I'm sure you're aware of the ongoing issues in the hospital at present and in the past. What is the government going to do with anything? We have been in a pandemic and things are gone from bad to worst. I spent the last four years in A&D every week with my mother, who has now passed away. My concerns, however, are every week I would have spent nine hours, sometimes ten hours on a chair with a 73-year-old woman who worked all of her life from the time she was 15 years of age. I found myself in many disputes with the staff and the doctors about these issues. This week I attended A&E again, this time though with my aunt, who is 73, uh, who also worked from the age of 14 uh, and was sent to the A&E from the doctor on call with a high concern uh, uh, about this lady, uh, possibly an internal bleed. Uh, we arrived at 7 o'clock in the evening and 
when I saw how many old and young people were in the waiting area, I asked how long it would be before we'd be seen and I was told it'll be at least nine hours. Family members took turns throughout the night uh, with this lady. This is Paula's aunt and she she was still in the waiting area at seven o'clock the following morning. That's from seven the previous evening. Luckily, uh, she got home at nine o'clock with a a prescription. Can I ask what on earth is the government going to do about this as a community? What can we do? I cannot fault the doctors or the staff of the hospital. They were amazing and they never stopped explaining or apologising to patients. It's the environment that these people are expected to work in. It's so unfair and so inhumane on people. Thank you indeed. I think one of the things that uh, we have to do when we go uh, to the emergency department is be patient. Uh, but I was reading through Paula's letter and I was thinking, why do we have to be that patient? Do we have to be that patient? I mean, we do because that's the situation. But why is that the situation? It's not the situation in other countries and we're told we spend everything on it. But the other, the, the other thing that I couldn't understand about Paula's email is that she went every week with her mother to the emergency department and waited an inordinate amount of time. Surely they have protocols or procedures in place that if uh, you've got somebody who's coming in on a regular basis uh, that uh, they're prioritised and that there's something there so that you don't have to go through that every time, that you don't have to go through the emergency department every time because if you go through the emergency department uh, it follows that you're going to have a long waiting time. Uh, but uh, thank you very much indeed uh, Paula for your email to the programme by the way if ever you do want to email us the email address is michael at lmfm.ie that's michael at lmfm.ie so whether you were emailing us today or whether you were on one of our social media sites on Facebook, Instagram or Twitter or whatever it was or whether you were on the phone or texting us or whatsapping us thank you indeed it's always great to hear from you Michael, Michael Reed, Reed on, on LMFM. Now let's go to Kells where they're chopping down trees and I don't mean that in a good way. Fine Gael Councillor Sarah Riley is on the line. A very good morning to you and thanks for joining us. There's a lot of concern locally about what's happening at Rabbit Hill Wood. Tell us more if you would please. Yeah, so basically a tree felling licence was issued um, through the trees at Rabbit Hill Wood and just so your listeners know that's kind of on the Slane Road out of Kells. Um, it's, it's an area to the rear of the cemetery in Cows and it'll be used regularly by the people um, to access the cemetery and also just a, as, as a local amenity. But um, far more importantly, it's also home to uh, family, families of Heron and this has been well documented over the years. And funnily enough, with the week, over the weekend, I also received calls from people telling me that there's red squirrels in there and oh. pine martin. Mm. And, um, you know, people are just really keen to see their habitat and home preserved. Okay. Well, pine martins are fabulous and rare to see. Red squirrels are on their way out uh, and herons, beautiful creatures. Uh, and this is their habitat. Uh, so how is it uh, that the plan is to destroy the wood? Well, that's what I, I suppose I'm so perplexed about because during the course of the county development plan process, the department put in a motion um, or put in uh, an observation basically to, to, um, during the process to highlight to us uh, as councillors for the Celtic Municipal District area that we had had a duty to preserve the heron, acknowledge the, the presence of the heron and they basically were telling us that whatever we did during the course of our, the county development plan process to ensure that whatever zoning or dezoning happened on the site was, was mindful of the presence of the heron. So how we, we come kind of, you know, a few months later to a tree felling licence being in place 
I, I, I don't know. I, I just don't know how we got to this place. It, it's mm. very disappointing. Right. I had looked for a tree preservation order to be put in as part of the county development plan process, but it couldn't be done during that process. But I did um, look for the um, for the rezoning of the site, basically from from A two residential um, to have it kind of for passive and recreational use. Like it, it, it's a fabulous site, and, and really, supposed to, to my mind, mm. it would be best. Served. But they're going, they're going to build houses, are they? Well, there, there is a planning application in there. Yeah. Um, to, to, to and it's to been zoned. That. It's zoned for residential. No, no. During oh. the course of the county development plan, um, I managed to get it uh, rezoned from from A two um, down to basically okay. kind of for, mm. for recreational and passive use. But that the planning application went in before the the county development, the new county development right. plan was in place. So, no, well, what does that mean? Explain that. No. Can, yeah, can, can they can they be uh, granted permission uh, to build housing? No, no, no. Basically, okay. the um, the planning will be as per the the county development plan that is now in place. So, so basically, mm. no, they won't they won't get planning permission um, okay. on that type now. But I suppose you know if you, the trees are gone, the line. If, if, if the, the trees are gone and you're, and the herons are gone and the pine martens yeah. are gone and the red squirrels are gone, there could be an argument to rezone land that's just lying there doing nothing. Yes, and that I suppose that, ah. that is ultimately the fear. Yeah. Ah. Yeah. Well. I don't think you need to be um, too clever to put two and two together, or, or, or is that mistaken of me? Well, that, that's, that is the local fear. That right. is the local fear, and that's, that's what the local comments are coming out about. And I suppose there's just a local surprise as well, because yeah. they all, people thought that this land was, was going to facilitate the natural expansion of the cemetery yeah. as well, well um, in, 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 I suppose, in decades to come. Well, yeah. if there was a risk of flooding, it seems Peter Burke would be writing to the council telling um, them to make sure that it, it's not used uh, for residential. Uh, is this uh, in line with uh, those uh, decisions that the minister has been concerned about, that it's local uh, pressure that has been put on councillors uh, to make decisions? Well, as I said, during the county development plan process, it was fairly, it was explicitly said to us that, you know, we needed to be mindful of the, the natural habitat that was there in place. And, uh, you know, and I acted on that mm. advice at the time. But could a, an executive decision be made about uh, the spelling licence? I, I have, I've, I've actually made several calls into the council. Um, I, I, this, this actually only came to my attention on Friday. So during the course of Friday, I made a number of calls mm. to the council just to see whether there was any element of consultation with the council mm. in relation to the granting of the felon licence. And, and I just haven't been able to establish that. Right. And um, you've, you've been concerned uh, that it may uh, be at odds with the Wildlife and Countryside Act, uh, the legislation uh, which protects uh, our countryside and the habitat uh, that these creatures would live under. Uh, I don't know. Is it a, a, an idea to ask Peter Burke to ask Eamon Ryan? Yeah, absolutely. I said that it, this has only come to my attention on Friday, and yeah. we had the impromptu demonstration then on on Friday evening. And I suppose you know people can say we kind of hold off and we, we get more momentum mm. and more people together. But those trees could have been gone over the weekend. Yeah, that's the thing. And when trees are gone, they're gone. And it's, you know, you yeah. can't get a bit of super glue back and 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 put them back up together again. But mm. when they are gone, it's too late. To and it's not it's not it's not just that you're taking away the habitat, which would be uh, very. Serious, I think, uh, for so many creatures, but undoubtedly you destroy many of the creatures in the tree felling process. 
Yeah, ab- absolutely. And, and look at Michael, I'm, I'm not an expert and I'm not holding myself out. Oh, well, I know. I, I'm, herons, you know? Are, her, herons are big birds and you wouldn't yeah. want to you wouldn't want to mess with them uh, uh, if you were a smaller creature, especially given the sharpness of, of their beaks. Uh, but if a tree falls on a heron, he's, he's got nowhere to go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and look at that. As I said, I'm not an expert in it. And if these, if it is the case that these trees have reached the maturity and they're, you know, a health and safety issue and they're, they're falling and, and somebody comes along, an expert in the field, mm. says, these trees do need to come down. I, you know, I'm, I'm, you know we're, we're all reasonable people, but we'd like to see some kind of plan in place devised by experts showing how, uh, you know, there's going to be minimal interference with the um, with the heron and yeah. the other wildlife that's there, how how are they going to be protected? Yeah. Uh, you know, has has a discussion happened on that? Maybe it has, but I, I've I've seen no evidence of it to date. Um, I did contact the applicant of the tree fell and license um, yeah. on Friday, and uh, also sent him an email there over the weekend. Just asking him to re- reconsider. Um, yeah, you know. and I saw that in your uh, email. Uh, I'm sure um, you did that with the best intentions. But you, I mean, that's a, a contractor, isn't it, uh, who does that for uh, a living? And you can't expect them to look at on this as anything other than a, a job uh, that they've been contracted to do. They probably would be in breach of contract if they didn't carry out the work. I take it. Do so we know uh, who's uh, asked them to fell, fall the, fell the trees? Yes, that's the person to whom I wrote that. Um, it wasn't the, the the contractor who I wrote out w- would have been the actual um, the person whose name was was listed right. um, as the original applicant. Yeah. Okay, and they bought the land, obviously. Well, I suppose, and that um, that has formed a large part of the conversation. And I, I'm just going on, you know, yeah. I, I live, I've lived in Kells all, all my life, but I'm just going on local mm. local feedback and what people are telling me. And, and there is a conversation in relation to to the ownership of the land. Um, it has been kind of pointed out to me time and time again that you know, you know that this land belongs to the parish. It's always belonged to the parish. But if you go, um, if you kind of look back through the rec- records, there's no registered owner on the land. Um, you know, which which makes it makes it I suppose, a bit more difficult. And a bit yeah, more well, the plot, the plot taken, I think, is uh, another way of putting that. Yeah, and I, I think I think, and I, to be honest, during the, the course of. Um, one of our more recent uh, municipal district meetings, I did ask the, um, the executive if they could do a definitive land search on it. Just because um, I think if that could be established, yeah. it might take away a bit of right. the element of unease around it. Listen, Sarah, will you keep us up to speed uh, on any developments? Uh, we'd be very interested. Thank you for joining us, Finnegale Councillor Sarah Riley. That's it for today. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9 a.m. right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.
Are you ready for truly hydrated skin? Meet Hyaluronic Body Serum, a breakthrough in body care from Osea. It's clinically proven to instantly increase hydration by 161%. Their lightweight, fast-absorbing serum delivers 24 hours of non-stop hydration for silky smooth skin without the sticky afterfeel. Osea's latest innovation combines the magic of their best-selling Hyaluronic Sea Serum with a new formula that's good for the whole body and five types of hyaluronic acid to target every layer of the skin. Osea is a women-founded, women-led brand that's been crafting seaweed-powered products for nearly 30 years. The best part? Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code SUMMER at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com code SUMMER.